This is IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. I'm your host, Lee Llewellyn. Indiana Municipal Power Agency is a not-for-profit power provider that serves the electric needs of 61 communities across Indiana and Ohio. IMPA supplies its towns and cities with low-cost, reliable, and environmentally responsible wholesale power, providing some of the Midwest's best electric rates. As a not-for-profit agency committed to supporting its members, IMPA also provides various services beyond power supply, including economic development opportunities. IMPA's Economic Development Writer is a valuable tool for IMPA member communities to encourage the growth and success of existing companies and their service territory and to attract new businesses to their area. The ED Writer's discount combined with low cost rates makes IMPA's public power community some of the best for economic growth. For more information about the ED Writer or any economic development opportunities offered by IMPA, please contact Victoria Rossfrost at victoriar at impa.com. IMPA is proud to sponsor this podcast from IEDA. Launched in 2012, Civic Lab is a unique nonprofit institute founded to leverage the lessons of community collaboration learned and fine-tuned over many decades in Columbus, Indiana. Led by J. Irwin Miller, Cummins CEO, arts patron, industrialist, and civil rights activist, the Columbus community became a leader in creating unique public-private partnerships, and Civic Lab seeks to spread the model to other communities using what has become internationally known as the Columbus Way. So in this podcast, I'm joined by Jack Hess, co-founder and executive director of Civic Lab, and Dakota Pawlicki, uh, Director of Talent Hubs with Civic Lab, Jack and Dakota. I want to thank you both for spending time with me today and joining me on the podcast. So, Jack, I'll start with you. Uh, Civic Lab is really unlike any other consulting entity that I'm familiar with. And in fact, I was re kind of reluctant to use the term consulting entity because they think what you do is a very unique model and a very unique approach. So, as a starting point, point, then talk about the genesis of Civic Lab and why this entity even exists. Yeah, there is an origin story to Civic Lab, that, that's to be sure. Um, Sarah, my wife, and myself were on vacation in Florida, and we just happened to be doing some sightseeing, and we bumped into a very unique community of Seaside, Florida. And unbeknownst to us at the time, you could just tell by the built and built environment something special was really going on there. So we got out of the car, took a look around, and uh, there was uh, an institute there called the Seaside Institute. And while they weren't open, uh, you could kind of get the mission right from you know the, the window of the facility, which said that they were in business to instill and grow the practice of new urbanism, which I'd never heard of at the time. But you could tell from the fabric of the community that um, it was a new concept and paradigm in thinking about way communities were designed. But what really intrigued me was this institute where they were bringing in people from all over the world to further the practice uh, in this living laboratory of Seaside, Florida. And it just gave me the idea, you know, I was thinking about the uniqueness of Columbus, Indiana and its public-private partnerships over many decades, and the question just kind of arose, 
you know, why not share the story of great public partnerships? And uh, wouldn't it be great if Columbus, Indiana could perhaps be the living laboratory for that conversation? Let's talk about, you know, some of the challenges and opportunities that communities bring to Civic Lab. Because again, I think um, you have a unique approach that we're going to talk about. But uh, Dakota, talk a little bit about some of the community challenges, opportunities, some of the projects that have been unique to what you do at Civic Lab. Yeah, we're pretty excited because we do work at the local level, hyper-local level right here in, in Columbus and Bartholomew County, um, of course, throughout the state. And then, um, you know, um, for, for a long time, but we've just really expanded our, uh, our national work as well. And so there are plenty of reasons uh, that communities of all sizes and shapes come to us. You know, we're pretty fiercely model agnostic. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're a group of people who is coming together to try to solve some kind of complex social challenge, uh, we're here to help you. So oftentimes, particularly in the in national work that we do around town hubs and our national talent network, communities, uh, regions uh, will come together and say, you know, how do we make sure we have the talent and the talent pipelines to meet today and tomorrow's workforce demand? Uh, how do we improve post-secondary attainment to make sure people are getting the education and training they need to live a prosperous life? Or, you know, how do we improve high school graduation rates, uh, even not only for our youth, but also for adults that maybe didn't get a high school diploma the first time around? So, uh, you know, when a group is trying to bring together the public, private, and social sector, it can be challenging at times. What we do is we help people, um, you know, add structure to the work they're trying to do, uh, partnership structures, guiding teams, getting the people in the right place uh, and functioning in the right way. We help uh, adopt, uh, places adopt a methodology, uh, a process, a stakeholder engagement process, which I, I know we'll talk more about. But I think the best way to think about it, you know, we have a, a partner of ours in Texas, Kenyatta Lovett, and uh, he, he recently was introducing us to his own team, which is always a great way to test uh, whether what your organization actually does is how other people describe you. And Kenyatta told his team, you know, Civic Lab's really good at helping us uh, add structure and give purpose to our initiatives. So um, that's, uh, you know, people come to Civic Lab for all sorts of reasons. Uh, you know, I'll just quickly add that while a lot of our work does tend to be in education and post-secondary education and talent, there are uh, several other ways that we have supported a number of communities. The fact is, is that uh, it's not a single thing, it's a systems thing. And so sometimes that means you have to tackle affordable housing, um, access to mental health supports, you know, childhood obesity. Uh, so if there's a complex social challenge uh, that requires uh, a group of multiple stakeholders to come together to solve, Civic Lab's here to help them. So who typically reaches out from a community? Who, who makes that initial contact? Is there any typical first contact or what's the range? You know, it usually comes out of the, the sector and the stakeholder who's experiencing the problem probably to the largest extent. So uh, universities obviously are a good candidate in the education space and post-secondary institutions. Um, a lot of community foundations and national foundations, they have the resources, but they want to direct and invest those resources in a more structured way. They will kind of uh, be the initiator of the conversation. Municipal, uh, local city and county government, you know, is the other area where they're trying to bring together uh, those stakeholders outside the public sector. And they're trying to, you know, really learn how to do that from an engagement perspective. So it's usually a problem within a single secular that's approaching us to see how do you bring the other sectors to the table. 
So one of the things that, that I was preparing this, one of the things that struck me was that you list a, a set of guiding principles that I think is what, in my mind, really makes this entity very unique. I don't know of many consulting entities. I don't know why I keep using that because I'm trying to find a generic term. Uh, that doesn't pigeonhole who you are or what you do. If you find one, let us know. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, because I think it's hard. To, it is hard to describe. I think the what you all do, but I think what's what's unique, as I looked at it, was that set of guiding principles that in, that drive your work. And I guess that probably many of those uh, did they emanate from J. Irwin Miller. And let's let me before we get into that. Let's go back and let's talk a little bit about how perhaps the presence of J. Irwin Miller in this community kind of informed the work that you're doing here or that, that was part of the founding of Civic Lab. So maybe, Jack, talk a little bit about that unique presence and how that helped inform some of the work that you did. Yeah, General Miller was the son of the Miller family who were the, probably the largest single investor uh, in Cummins. Cummins Engine at that time or Cummins Inc. today. Uh, it had lost money for 17 straight years without ever earning a profit. Uh, but the Miller family decided it was time you know, to grow that little enterprise into something uh, profitable within the family's portfolio. They brought young Jerwin Miller back, just graduated uh, out of Yale, and his really task was to see if he could actually make Cummins a, a profitable and viable entity, otherwise divest it from the family's portfolio of businesses. He was a liberal arts major by training and background. And so he, he tended to have a more humanistic and big picture view of the world and, and had a, a lot of influences all the way from Goethe to Churchill and just humanism that he brought to the table, but also because of that, he was one of the first practitioners of the stakeholder model yeah. or the stakeholder concept, which is taught in many business schools today. But when you think he was writing about it in the 50s and practicing it in the 70s, uh, it really made a, a significant, meaningful difference in the leadership's you know, landscape of the community. And the three things I think that really you know did stick out is he always encouraged us, even in the 70s, you know, don't rehabilitate the damaged products of systems. You know, instead transform the systems themselves. In other words, don't fix people, fix systems, which is a pretty revolutionary thought. You know, in the 70s, the second one is based upon that first principle: our relationships are really what systems are composed of. So focus on the relationships, and the resources will follow. They're a happy byproduct of a job well done on re resource building. And the third principle, which really probably as much as anything was the jump-off point for Civic Lab, was the process is more important than the product, and he always believed that. In a funny way, Columbus is known for its architecture and the built environment, but what Jerome Miller knew was two things. One, the actual built environment is the physical manifestation of something much more important going on, which was always the process. And he figured by really having people work together, they were understanding how to you know, build things together, but that was putting together this big pool of social capital that could really be applied to a lot of different challenges, not only at the present day then, uh, but also well into the future. And I, and I know when I did some reading about J. Irwin Miller, we, we've come to accept that term stakeholder as 
sort of generic, but that he was really one of the founders of that concept of that from a company standpoint, yes, there are stockholders, but that the company actually has responsibilities toward many stakeholders, which are the employees, which are the community that depends upon, you know, the jobs and, and what comes out of that company, and that there's a much broader sort of concentric set of circles that a company as an entity has some responsibility toward. And that pretty radical concept, probably, when he was first espousing that. It was kind of heresy at the time, especially, you know, when, when you had uh, the, the mantra, the thing was the social responsibility of a business is to make profit, you know, and that's its only, you know, kind of give back. He always knew that the uh, a company could only be as successful as the community it was embedded in. So again, there's that big picture kind of ask, you know, kind of thinking on that. But he also, if you were going to be a leader in Cummins or in the community itself, your job was to understand the various stakeholders, what made them unique, what created value for each of those different kinds of groups. Uh, and then, you know, understand how the relationships worked, but also how you could uh, create greater value for each of them in a very balanced way. Again, you're right, totally radical at that time. Yeah. Well, in some cases, it still is considered somewhat radical because there's still a lot of discussion, I think, today about, you know, what is the true position, what is the true purpose of a company, and so I think we're having those conversations all over again. So let's go back to the, some of those guiding principles. You've talked about one of them already. Um, I'm going to uh, highlight uh, some of them as we go down the list and, and maybe just talk about how they inform your work, but you've already talked about it's a systems thing, not a single thing, is one of the guiding principles. What does that mean? Um, I mean, it means exactly what it is. There's a lot of um, uh, communities and um, individuals and organizations that uh, try to focus on a particular problem. Uh, we don't have the kind of talent that we need to fill this job demand. And the reaction oftentimes is to revert to a programmatic way of thinking. Uh, let's start up a new pipeline program. Let's set up a new scholarship. We need more coaches. Uh, but the reality is that the system is working exactly as it's designed to do. So if you're trying to uh, solve a complex challenge, you actually have to do it at that systems level. It helps folks kind of rethink uh, the problem that they're facing altogether and saying it actually is a systems challenge rather than just being uh, a single problem. Uh, and if it is a systems challenge, then how do we redefine that system, which gets into some of the other principles. Namely that, you know, as Jack had already mentioned, the system is ourselves. Uh, the system is not, as we like to tell people and remind folks, the system is not a set of policies or practices or funding streams or programs even. Uh, what it is, it's a series of relationships among the various stakeholders uh, that are most approximate to the challenges they're trying to solve. And so you can't possibly change uh, a dynamic social challenge by just changing one particular stakeholder, one particular program. You really have to change the way that all of those things are working together. So I think that gets to the second principle, though, which was transforming a system is about ultimately building and transforming relationships. So you've talked about that a little bit. Did I cut you off, Jack? I was just going to add, you know, about sometimes we will almost ingest lay the ground rule as we're going into a system process, a system change process to say, you know, we're going to go around the circle here, the process circle here, and the first time around, no new programs. You know, let's make sure the fit 
among all of our work is as tight as we can have it be in terms of its integration um, before we try to add additional elements to that. And we just define the system as that's the way we work together. And, you know, it's a paradigm shift going from this programmatic world to the systems model. But, you know, we say, you know, we're not, it's not about more work. It's, try, it's about better work. Fundamentally redesigning the work that we do together, uh, I think, is the ground rule. But it's also an important distinction. You're not having people think about working in the system as much as you're thinking about having them work on the system. And that takes a lot of facilitation because it, it's continually bringing the thinking, the conversation, and uh, the collaboration itself back up to that system's level, you know, time and time and time again. Because uh, as Mr. Miller said, it's not necessarily natural. We'd rather rehabilitate damaged products and try to solve and work on problems uh, than actually restructure the systems themselves. So that continual awareness about the importance important thing and not just working in it but also on a system is a lot of what we mean by as a systems thing this is kind of abstract so is there an example that you can share in terms of maybe a, a an opportunity where you did sort of a system reboot or focused on the system to address a problem. Maybe a good example might be Counseling Counts here in our own community of, of Columbus with the Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation. We were highly concerned as an organization that's trying to get people into post-secondary and in careers of why our school counselors were spending less and less and less and less time on uh, college readiness, uh, career kind of counseling and advisement. And when we kind of talked with them, uh, they said because more of 40 to 50 percent of our time is being spent on mental health and just general wellness of, of the conditions uh, in that area. And they were doing all that they could, I think, programmatically within the school corporation. So, you know, we convinced them, well, what, why, what would a community-wide mental health system look like where we flipped, you know, kind of the model to uh, a true community holistic mental health approach as opposed to just saying, well, that's the school corporation's responsibility or having the school corporation add yet another program, which they've done. They had numerous programs. In fact, it took us quite some time to map out all the programs themselves. But what we really found at the end of the day, you know, there were uh, strained relationships. There were relationships that maybe atrophied just because kind of people left over natural, you know, progression of time to retirement or looking at other opportunities. And so a lot of our work was just getting a, a systems lens put on it. That's where we kind of came up with also the ground rule, no new programs until we get the system where it is we want, want it. Um, but we worked on relationships for two to three solid years about the roles and responsibilities that all of us had uh, in the problem of mental health and what each of us could do together that none of us could do alone to make um, a community-wide effort uh, on that uh, and that you know that ended up being you know a very significant um, body of work with over 40 stakeholders that's still going on today and I mean I'll cut kind of to the end game on that it was so well received by the community that we put it out for referendum uh, to get funded for it along with teacher pay and uh, it was unanimously approved for seven years of funding you know which is a you know there's part of the sustainability model on that 
So it was a great example of part of our model. You, you incubate and demonstrate something to prove it. Then you figure out if you can scale it and replicate it, which we did. We went from one school to all 17 schools with full you know, staff and for, for mental health advisement, mainly served by the community itself. And then you figure out how to work in policy and practice, you know, get it worked into the community's fabric and system. And for us, that was a numerous ways of changing a lot of ways that stakeholders work together, but even more so getting into policy, in this case government policy, in a successful referendum. So you may have touched upon in that example this next principle, but, but I think it helps to, to kind of articulate it, and improving the system is everyone's responsibility. So I think, again, you talked about that, but, but let's talk about, you know, when we talk about everyone's responsibility, what does that imply? One of the first things that we do when we're working with a community or a group is to identify the who is involved in the work. Uh, you have to understand uh, the who is in the system, the relationships that most uh, shape that system in order to, to change them in the first place. Part of, inherently, a part of that process is also identifying how each of these stakeholders have responsibility for the system that they're trying to change or that they have an output in. And that responsibility changes by, of course, the issue at hand, but also by the way that that stakeholder operates. What we like to do a lot of times, particularly in the West, particularly here in the U.S., is uh, add accountability structures. Uh, we hear it all the time. You're not doing a good enough job doing X, Y, or Z, so uh, we're going to layer a bunch of metrics on it when you know you have to do this framework, and then if you don't do a great job, we're going to attach it to your funding and, and all these things. We, we tend to pull to the accountability tool way too often. And what oftentimes gets skipped over is the acceptance of what is each individual stakeholder's role and what is their unique responsibility in that system to reshape that system before you can ever get to accountability. In other words, how can you hold an individual responsible or accountable, excuse me, how can you hold an individual accountable for something before we understand collectively how everyone's responsible for this uh, particular challenge? We actually learned this lesson from manufacturing and industry and really going back to the Toyota way and the Cummins business model. But, you know, in kind of the, the 60s and the 70s, you had the inspection booth at the end of the manufacturing line themselves. Right, and then Deming and Toyota got together with the Toyota Way, and had the on-down cords that you pull when there's a problem. And the idea was to emphasize the idea that responsibility, you know, this quality is everyone's responsibility, not just the three or four people at the end. When let's face it, it's too late to measure it by then anyway. And so it's um, it's a principle from there, but it was used very successfully in the Finland school reform uh, area and for us what that the, the I think the principle kind of means is responsibility is kind of like an intrinsic standard I put myself accountable myself for where accountability is more this external structure I impose on others and so the idea with the principle is let's start with ourselves let's accept personal responsibility for the success of the system and then you know perhaps later on we can look at you know more formal accountability structures or systems but the ordering I think to that principle is important where you start and where you begin for a reason I think when I when I was looking at that and thinking about it I think typically we may look and say well that's leadership's problem. Somebody else up the chain needs to fix that. And this is really more of a uh, dispersed leadership authority responsibility model that says, no, 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 it's not always somebody else's problem up farther up the food chain. That responsibility really starts at a much more 
a collaborative level. Is that is that right? I think that's fair. And you know what I like about that, Lee, is that that applies in an organizational context. You know, if you're an individual working in an organization. And, you know, I, I used to, before joining here, before coming to Indiana, I was in Chicago Public Schools. And we love accountability in Chicago Public Schools. It's like the name of the game. Uh, and as an employee, there was a lot of things that I was accountable for. And as an employee of central office, it was my job. Oftentimes, uh, our, our central office folks thought our job is to hold schools and teachers accountable. But what we lacked, the, you know, to your point, is that we didn't think about how are we responsible for this system. But I also would extend that to say you can think about it from outside of an organizational context into a collective context. And what does it mean for everyone within a community, multiple stakeholders to accept their role as responsibility? Continuing with the Chicago example, what does it mean when Chicago Public Schools or any public school district accepts responsibility for a particular system and acknowledges that the role goes beyond an accountability structure? You know, what does it mean for state government to think of themselves beyond just accountability? And if they started, as Jack said, sequence it more appropriately to say, how are we responsible for the system we're trying to change first? You know, all these conversations kind of change quite a bit. So it is, you know, distributed organizationally throughout an organization's hierarchy and laterally across multiple stakeholders. And another way to think about something we think of it as a parallel structure. I mean, back to the Toyota example, you still had, you know, the bureaucratic, over 100 year old, you know, Japanese top to bottom hierarchy in place, which, you know, is really important, you know, in that culture. But they allowed this autonomy of these separate work teams to be self directed and self guided and self managed to accept the responsibility at that level. And they allowed both of those structures to operate in parallel, you know, which I thought was an amazing thing. But that, that tends to be a really good analogy for communities because you tend to get a lot of pushback. Well, if the hierarchy won't allow us to do it, there's nothing, a lot, a lot we can do. Well, there are many examples in the world where these dual structures are, are allowed to uh, exist uh, and prosper quite, quite well, actually. So I think that's a perfect setup then for the next guiding principle, which is when it comes to community collaboration, the process is the product. And so again, you've talked a lot about that process, but explain this particular guiding principle. So I would say the most important aspect of Civic Lab has always been the stakeholder engagement process as we kind of define it. Uh, we often remind everyone if you're collaborating, you're already using a process, you just may not realize it. And there are good processes and there are better processes, uh, you know, in that area. Uh, for us, the stakeholder engagement process is the name probably, you know, it was very much influenced again by the fabric of the community. Uh, it's a relationship-based model as opposed to a problem-solving model. And what's the difference? Well, we're not trying to make something go away. So you and I aren't getting together uh, with the fundamental purpose of trying to move away from something. Uh, we're actually trying to move towards something, which is the improvement of the way we work together. And so it has to focus not on problems or resources, uh, which tend to be deficit-based types of focus, but it, it, it really much looks at uh, an asset-based kind of lens to look at, well, relationships, the more we use them, the more they strengthen just like a muscle. So the whole process is a circle. It's meant to be continuous improvement. You go around the circle time and time again because the system changes as you do that. It's got four stages, which are roughly this, you know, whose, you know, kind of relationships most shape a guiding question, which is where everything starts. The process has to be driven by that guiding question that you and I are trying to address together. 
And then whose relationships most affect that? The second question is why? You know, why are the relationships currently working that way? And what does the data tell us? And I mean that by both primary voices and secondary data. Tell us about the quality of those relationships and the outcomes they're currently producing. And then what? You know, what can we do together that neither one of us can do alone? And therefore, what rela new relationships might we need to cultivate? What ones have to rewire or strengthen? And then the how is just something. How are we going to test that out? How are we going to test out this new way of working between ourselves? And based on what we learn, how are we going to incorporate that learning back into the community or the system? And you repeat you know, kind of from there. And as you do that, it looks like a spring coil or a, you know, an upward kind of helix where you're going around in a circle, but you're also hoping quantitatively and qualitatively, you're also improving, you know, the, the community and the systems of which it's a part. Okay, so the next one seems a little bit abstract, but I think, so, so explain, if it remains invisible, then it remains unsolvable. What does that mean? Systems are often very invisible. Uh, you, you know, so far what we've been really talking about are uh, the relationships. Um, we don't have oftentimes very good insight into how those relationships actually function or work. Sometimes they're reliant on the more implicit uh, kind of understanding of uh, how maybe two organizations work together. Alternatively, there are a lot of instances where a dynamic challenge, uh, take homelessness for example, is trying to be solved through static data. We take a one time a year count on how bad is homelessness in a given city. How can you possibly solve uh, an issue as, as dynamic and tricky as homelessness by measuring it once a year? So a lot of the times we work with partnerships, we say, you know, what is it that you're trying to solve? And now first steps, let's visualize that system. Let's visualize the set of relationships and how each of these stakeholders plays a role and has that responsibility for that particular system. Let's visualize the actual challenge that you're trying to solve. And sometimes that means greater data visualization. We have some great work going on uh, here in the county around Equity Works uh, with getting down to census block groups data, using GIS data. I mean, to really visualize very, very in a hyper-local way uh, the dimensions of equity when it comes to income disparities and educational attainment and, and all all sorts of factors. Uh, sometimes it means the various programs. Uh, right now, some work that we have going on in Michigan, you know, particularly focused on making sure uh, K-12 students have access to dual credit and dual enrollment opportunities. The practitioners, the school counselors, the college advisors, they know how complex the system is. But as you move up in terms of leadership and as you move into different organizations, people just think, yeah, you know, you, you, here's a sign on the wall, you go and get dual credit. It turns out every single school district has a different process for accessing dual credit and dual enrollment for every single college. And across eight counties, we're talking about three or 400 different processes just to dual, dual credit or dual enrollment. That is a system that we have to visualize first before we can even begin to understand how we can change the system to actually solve the problem. And I think there's probably a case in many communities where people have been doing things a certain way for so long that they are no longer really cognizant of how all of that stuff works because that's just the way things are, so to speak, right? Yeah, people can only see what they're prepared to see and, and what you're right at time things seem to slip out of our, our awareness. You know, with the system you got parts, 
but we also know that the system's more in the parts, right? It's it's also what happens in between those parts. Everything that happens in between those parts, every interaction, you know, that happens, and uh, feelings and exchanging of data and pieces like that. That's in between. That's what holds the whole system together. That's all invisible. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's we can perceive it because we see changes and we see. You know actions and, and that but for the most part if if there isn't someone that's going to come in and, and make those invisible elements that are going on in between the parts visible for most part most of the system will remain invisible i think about jonathan shacklin he was the one who actually did some of the research about the ozone layer and you know we came up on the 20th anniversary of his work and um, it made a huge difference globally and how people oriented that problem. But when they asked his advice, he said, what, you know, what seemed to be the secret? He said, what seemed to be the secret is we had this one really great picture of the ozone layer before and after. And the simplicity of it was you could take it to your grandmother and she would look at it and go, oh, I, I see what you mean. And so uh, even though they collected just, you know, tremendous amounts of data on Dobson units and things that wouldn't even make any sense to me or probably most, you know, to the, the general public, they were able to help them see it and visualize it in a way that, you know, they had the global compact in place almost probably within 18 months of that picture being made visible. And that is the primary question to that um, principle, which is, you know, as a team, what do we want to make visible? And the idea is to try to get to a data-informed story that causes collective action. And if people look at that and want to take action and kind of feel what action's necessary, that's a pretty good day at kind of, you know, making the system visible. Uh, so the next one seems kind of common sense, but I uh, suspected it's probably much more complex than just than what it says. But it, it's the, the next principle is it's better to dissolve a problem than solve it. And I think that seems like, well, of course, but that's got to be much harder than just saying, of course, let's just dissolve the problem. So what does that mean and how do you practice that? This comes from the fact that we found most people think there's only one way to address a problem, and that's you solve it. And for some reason, I think from a connotation perspective, a lot of people think solving means ending, but it really is not. You're just solving the problem for one instance, and then when that instance reoccurs, you have to solve it again and we end up solving the same problem over and over and over again, which is a you know terrible use of resources over the long run, probably not sustainable, but we even start to take our self-identity as experts on certain kinds of problems by being able to solve them. And so it's trying to really bring awareness to there's more one way to address a problem than just solving the problem over and over again. Uh, and those quickly absolve ourselves of the problem, just wash our hands clean, uh, say now's not the time or we don't have the resources or, you know, we, who knows, maybe it'll solve itself. We wash our hands, we absolve it. Two is to resolve it, which means we're just going to do what we did in the past. You might call that managing the problem um, or helping the community cope with the problem. It's about efficiency and programs and managing stuff. Solving is just what you think. It's not about ending, you know, the, the area. It's about new practices and new behaviors that we're going to kind of apply, but it's still kind of directed on a case-by-case, -case, individualized basis. For those, all three of those work inside a system. D dissolution works on the system itself, and that goes back to the distinction we were trying to make earlier. You're trying to dissolve a problem. How? By redesigning the underlying system and set of conditions that created the problem in the first place. So it's a creative act. 
where the rest of them are more of a, again problem solving means we're trying to move away from something and in something where for the first time we could actually ask the question what is it we want to create and how are we going to redesign the underlying system so the problems are dissolved as opposed to continually solving them over again yeah i think one of the greatest activities that someone who's listening right now can do this is something we're doing with folks across the country right now, is go to your, your frontline folks who are serving whoever your constituents or beneficiaries are and ask them on a weekly basis, what are the problems that you continually find yourself solving over and over again? Because as Jack mentioned, once you solve a problem for one person, all you've done is solve a problem for one person. The next appointment coming in through your door, you're gonna have to resolve that problem over and over and over again. So identify some of those challenges that you find yourself using your resources, solving constantly over and over again. Get a team of people together who wanna take responsibility for that particular system and say, what can we actually change to remove that problem altogether from occurring? Uh, we see this happen a lot of times, going back to process as product, in the education sector. Uh, ask a coach, ask a counselor, an advisor, a navigator, what do you have to do to help somebody get access to a job, get access into financial aid, get access into uh, a post-secondary training program? And let's figure out and map out what those particular pain points are. Then you take that information, work upstream, go back behind the process and say, how do we get rid of that step altogether? And sometimes, Lee, you know, I appreciate where you started the question because it feels so obvious. And a lot of people you know, do come to us and say, gosh, it's so obvious. Why did we think about that before? Because it can be sometimes as simple as you know, getting rid of a, a form or a step or combining forms or streamlining information. Uh, one of the case studies we, we often teach uh, is about uh, Rockford and their participation in an initiative called Built for Zero. It's a great example of how a community came together and rewired relationships to uh, reach functional zero for veterans who were unhoused. Um, there's a lot to learn from that story, but one of the things they did was, you know, it used to be that you had to navigate all these different agencies to receive support, to receive, you know, if you, who had housing available, we don't you have to go to the next organization we don't and that's a lot of burden to put on somebody what do we do we just get them all in one room we meet you know every other week and go by a by name list the system now is working more functionally on behalf of the individual uh, to keep on track I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead on one here and go to uh, the, the principle that says a system cannot be controlled but it can be redesigned because I know systems work is a lot of what is the the substance of what Civic Lab does? So talk about a system cannot be controlled, but it can be redesigned. So this, I think this just comes out really the probably the, the systems practice itself, or any part itself, doesn't have a unilateral control on the system. It's obviously be, being part of the system. It's it is can be influenced and impacted by any and all other parts uh, on that area. So no one part can ever control a system. That's almost the very basic definition uh, of that kind of idea. But you know the system itself can be redesigned over and over and over again uh, on the area. So again, I think it's just really trying to move people from thinking about you know if you think you're going to control a big unwieldy social system, good luck. You know it's a really hard thing to do whether you participate in it or not. Uh, but two, there is a better solution, a creative solution of what we want the system ultimately to do on uh, the area. It also supports the idea of dissolution again. And to Dakota's extra, you know, kind of excellent point, we talked about you solve it for one, sometimes we call it, and then extend it to many. And the thing about that particular principle that I think is embedded in that fact is most 
communities stop after the first step, but there's two steps, right? It's a coin and it's got two sides and you have to flip it over. You have to solve for one to know what problems exist, but you also have to flip it over. And this is what Rockford did so well. And that's the next question. And how will we redesign the system so that that problem doesn't happen again? And those are two kind of bodies of work, one informing the other, one a problem solving approach, make it go away, but the other one a creative approach on how we're really trying to design and get to the system we want. So embedded implicit of that is just trying to get away from the control aspect and, and see it really as a creative practice of what it is we want to do together. But, it's, but, but how much of uh, the challenge is when communities think of systems or when entities are thinking about a system, they seem to have a sense of almost permanence. Well, the system is here because, you know, for reasons beyond us, it was created a number of years ago. It has a life sort of beyond us. How much does that attitude, though, get in the way of solving some of those problems or redesigning? Well, that system is here for a reason, and it's not our place to, to mess with the system. We just have to sort of fix what's broken within the system. It's certainly a pervasive attitude. Um, and if you look at a lot of collective impact literature and others, you know, they talk about the six conditions of system change. And often the one that we don't get to is shifting mental models, which is exactly what you're talking about. There is a role, uh, let's call it for a moment, a survival tactic of accepting one's fate in a system. We can't change the system because it's so big, it's so large. Right. Uh, it must be here for a reason. But uh, let's go back up to the principles we just talked about. You know, one, accept responsibility. What is your part in the system? And how do you relate to other parts in that system? And then, you know, two, let's visualize the system that we're trying to change. And oftentimes when we actually start to really visualize those set of relationships that define the system, we realize it's a rather impermanent thing that we're talking about here. And it's actually rather easy to change. And that's why I like the word, you know, that we use in the principle here. It's not about blowing up a system and creating a brand new system. All we're really doing is continuous improvement. It's iteration. You're redesigning the system. So it doesn't have to be a wholesale rejection of one or the other and a wholesale recreation of something, but rather a constant practice of examination of how to make the system work a little bit better. And I think once people kind of get over the initial reaction, the initial terror, uh, the initial daunting element of trying to you know, create systems change and really understand that really what we're doing here is just a redesign process, a continuous, a continuous improvement process, it becomes more digestible, it becomes more acceptable. Okay. That's a good response. I'm glad it's recorded. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> to stay on, on time here, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Much of what we've talked about has been kind of abstract. I mean, we've been talking about the principles. So what I would like to spend the rest of our time talking about are some examples of work that you have done either uh, around Indiana or in other communities that really exemplify some of those principles or that, that you think are really the models of the application of what Civic Lab is doing to help in sort of that system redesign and that collaboration model. So Dakota, let's, let's start with you and you know, what do you think are a couple of really good examples of how Civic Lab has applied this model to, for some results? Yeah, I think this is a whole extra show. Uh, you know, one of the reasons we run uh, two national networks, uh, the National Talent Network, which is a group of about you know, over 100 cross-sector partnerships around the country 
that are coming together to focus on making sure their communities or regions um, have uh, the kind of talent they need to be successful. Uh, among those are exemplars, uh, places that have met really high rigorous standards to uh, serve as a national exemplar, exemplar and an aspirational target for other partnerships. We refer to them as talent hubs. And so we have uh, dozens and dozens of examples of how groups, partnerships of all sizes, of all shapes and forms have come together to you know, solve these kind of complex social challenges among them. I mentioned earlier, you know, right now we're been working uh, with our Detroit talent hub, which is led by the Detroit Regional Chamber of Commerce, supported by uh, two large foundations, the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation and Balmer Group. They are bringing together uh, eight community colleges, dozens of employers, dozens of K-12 districts, state agencies, all sorts of other folks to really get around this question of how do we reduce the post-secondary attainment equity gap by half and uh, work towards Michigan's broader state-level goal of 60% by 30, uh, by 2020, uh, 2030, excuse me. So what we've done is we said, okay, we We've studied all these partnerships. What we can do is say, hey, let's help you first structure what this partnership looks like. It's one thing to go out and say, hey, we all need to do something together. And then a bunch of people get into a room and it becomes, let's talk about all these issues, but not actually work together to solve anything. So we've uh, uh, you know, been supporting uh, the Detroit Drives Degrees Community College Collaborative, D3C3. It's a, it's a mouthful. To help them add the partnership structures. How do you embed a guiding team, a smaller substitute group? Uh, responsible for an individual part of the system. Let's help visualize the system so we know what we need to change when it comes to dual enrollment, when it comes to ensuring that people have the career pathways needed to enter the mobility sector, etc. So guiding team structures, leadership team structures, how do you actually tangibly structure a forming partnership? We've also helped them provide uh, a unique stakeholder engagement process. You know, we have the Columbus way. How do we help Detroit have a Detroit way? You know, so we've been supporting them in, in kind of developing that collaborative methodology. As a result, right now, all these colleges have their own individual action plans that are aligned towards these broader regional goals that they're doing on their campus. Now we're also coming together to say, what can we do together that we can't do alone when it comes to these broader topical areas aligning towards regional outcomes? And then from there, we're just gonna be a state, you know, a, a policy group, right? So you can kind of see the nested structure. So again, what we've done is we've helped them add structure and purpose and intent and methodology to their particular practice. Another quick example at, at a you know, South Texas college. Uh, this is another great example where uh, we did a little bit of uh, just talking and, and motivation for them and prevent, presenting them our ideas and our tools and frameworks. They really latched on to the idea that it's better to solve a problem than to solve it. Um, so we help them uh, form a, uh, a dissolution team on their campus. And it's, you know, to your point earlier, Lee, a lot of people think that that's what's going on at the leadership level. Yeah, that, you know, our VPs and our presidents of our organizations come together and they share information and they solve, you know, problems that only the organization can. But, you know, that's not always the case. Not saying that they aren't doing that, but it doesn't always trickle down. So we help them create a dissolution team across uh, departmental with the institutional research office, student success, academic affairs, faculty, you name it, all coming together. And they said, okay, our only purpose is not to solve problems, but actually to dissolve problems. So let's spend a year going around campus and learning from every single one of these units and identifying what are the most common challenges that we're solving for on a daily basis that prevent a student from succeeding on this campus. And then let's go back and as a group of you know, mid to senior level leaders at this institution with a lot of agency, with a lot of resources, 
how do we dissolve those problems altogether? We have examples all across the country, uh, as Jack mentioned. Uh, you know, we work with chambers of commerce, economic development agencies, uh, independent 501c3s that are conveners, state-level organizations, hyper-local organizations. But essentially, it all comes down to uh, helping people adopt structures and processes to solve uh, complex social challenges through a systems approach. I'd like to hold up and maybe an example. A documentary was released in the last two weeks out of Kent County, which is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and Civic Lab had worked years in earnest with um, their leadership teams and a broad cross-section of lived experience and, and community volunteers and agencies to work on housing there. And they've, like many communities, have found the kind of the housing market upside down and just extraordinary equity-based problems in that like one out of every six African-American and black children will find themselves in the housing system compared to about one out of every 130 white students in the population of the school district. And so, you know, they really, again, took these principles to earn as first one, you know, they, they said, I, we didn't really ever think we could dissolve uh, the housing problem. We never even thought about it and what it would mean to do so. And they made that their goal. I mean, right, right off the top, uh, they were going to put an equity lens on, on the system to try to eliminate the statistical differences between race and ethnic demographics. Um, but they're really going to try to work on redesigning the system itself. So part of the thing that's even in the documentary is, you know, Civic Lab has really helped them change the language that they used and therefore change the level of thinking that they were there. And then to the principle of, well, we've got to make it visible. So we developed for them kind of the housing continuum, which has kind of seven stages, which moves left to right, kind of from a red critical to a green housing by choice. And so, you know, there's no housing and temporary house and soon to lose housing all the way across the spectrum. So that helped them all of a sudden visualize the problem because then we could define who kind of falls within each stage of the spectrum. Uh, two, we actually put what the community's responsibility was. There's the principle of assuming responsibility before accountability for each of the stages. Uh, and then when they were able to put the baseline data, exactly how many families fall within each of those kind of pieces of the continuum. Uh, what are some of the leading indicators that would tell you someone's about ready to find themselves uh, in that? And then, you know, once they visualized it and accepted responsibility, then the nice thing is once the work was defined, then they set their entire coalition structure around that continuum. So there are seven kind of stages in the spectrum uh, that they have. They don't have quite seven work teams, but they have a number of work teams who work on parts of that and then a guiding team which holds together, you know, the overall body of work in that way. So they were actually able to structure themselves around the problem which they framed more in a system way. So I think it's a great example of um, an equity lens, uh, committing to redesign the system, changing the language that we're here to dissolve it, making the system visible itself, measuring our progress, but knowing what our responsibilities are. And they're having tremendous, you know, success uh, and outcomes and changing the very fabric of that community. As we wrap up, what haven't we covered that you feel is absolutely critical before we close? Is there anything that we can touch upon? I'll go just back to the very top. We don't consider ourselves consultants or a consulting agency. And I, and I think, you know, you can probably glean from this and what your listeners can probably glean from this is I, I hope that we don't sound like a consulting agency either. We, 
we probably sound a little bit different. You know, we are an institute. Uh, we're an institute of practitioners that have led and designed uh, collaboratives at all sorts of scales, hyper-local, state, national, and uh, we're teachers. And unlike, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with consulting agencies out there, but I like to make that nuance because uh, one of our other key principles that isn't on this list that we didn't get a chance to even talk about, which is fine because we have, I always joke, we have like probably 30 or 40 principles, but anyway, is that we, we, we don't try to do two or even four uh, folks. We try to do things with people. We think that's an important principle, not only for a local collaborative, a regional collaborative, but also for us. We much prefer to come alongside and support people and stakeholders who want to answer the question, you know, what can we do together that we can't do alone? Um, and so I think that distinction is just important. There are a lot of institutes out there that produce, you know, really high quality uh, research and tools and frameworks, and they post them and say, good luck on using this. We're a little bit different. Sure, we do provide all that kind of information, case studies and tools and frameworks, but we're also willing to get into the nitty gritty with you and come alongside you to support your work without coming into a community and just doing something to you and then leaving. Uh, I think there's a lot of that that happens in, in the U.S., and we have tons of case studies where that hasn't quite worked. So with Indiana being our home and having really deep relationships throughout the state, you know, we're eager to continue serving uh, the state of Indiana and the communities and the people who call it home. We often leave our partners with the thought that a community is often like very much like a garden so it's a system to that extent and for those that are, you know that, that are gardeners and had that experience you know there are really two lenses and two bodies of work there that almost have to c collaborate and support each other but are very different you know we can on our own design the garden in terms of its layout and its shape and its forms and its functions of what we want to kind of have go where and we can go out and manage the you know the construction of that physical infrastructure before we get the plants in but when it gets to the plant side of it it's a completely different beast i mean we really don't know how plants grow and we don't have the ability to grow them all we can really do is cultivate and create the conditions that will help facilitate the growth and then be willing to adapt. We never know in context what something is going to work and where and, and, and how. And I think the biggest uh, thing we try to help people with is knowing, you know, where can we create things, but where must we cultivate things? And try not to manage the things that should be cultivated and, and perhaps leaving cultivation to the things that should be managed and, and helping them know that really important distinction. Because I think that's the secret great gardeners know. And I think it's the same secret that great system builders and communities know as well. I want to thank you both for taking time to talk to me today. I've been talking with Jack Hess, co-founder and executive director of Civic Lab, and Dakota Palicki, the director of Talent Hubs with Civic Lab. Civic Lab operates out of Columbus, Indiana, but has really probably a, a, a national footprint. And so thank you for taking the time. And, and uh, we may have to talk again, because that's, this is a very deep work that you all are doing. So I appreciate your time today. Appreciate you. Always happy to come back on. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for listening. IMPA is a proud sponsor of IEDA and its podcast series. IMPA and its public power communities are committed to helping businesses thrive. For more information, please contact Victoria Rossbross at victoriar at impa.com. You've been listening to IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. All content on this podcast is copyright 2023 
by the Indiana Economic Development Association, which retains all rights to this content. And by the way, the theme music was composed and performed by me, Lee Llewellyn. Thanks.